You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. You're about to hear my interview with Michael Surrett. Uh, I've interviewed a colleague of his recently, Paul Moyetti. Both of these gentlemen uh, have tremendous credentials. Um, they're doing studies on fecal transplants to help problems such as uh, irritable bowel, Crohn's, C. difficile infections. You know, these terrible, terrible conditions that can make people's lives hell because their bowels are just, you know, at war with them. They may be having diarrhea constantly, uh, just feel sick with everything they eat, losing weight uncontrollably, etc. These are a set of conditions that are not fun. But what is interesting that you're going to hear is that the microbiome plays a huge role. We don't know exactly how or why. We don't know exactly how to fix it, but it plays a huge role in these conditions, in these chronic conditions. Uh, one input seems to be food, is a tremendous input. The other part is uh, the state of your microbiome, you know, what creatures are there in your microbiome who's predominant, who's not, what products are they making, how are they interacting with your you know, human cells. So that's what uh, these guys are studying. So again, we talk about fecal transplants and the microbiome. We get into a lot of concepts that are pretty in-depth about the microbiome, but it's a tricky thing to understand. It's just unbelievably complicated and fascinating. I've spoken to many, many people about the microbiome. Each one has a different um, you know, take and tact and tells me new things. So definitely listen in. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Michael G. Surrett, professor uh, in the Division of Gastroenterology, Department of Medicine at McMaster. Uh, Mike, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, great. I'm glad, glad to be here. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I speak to a lot of people that have so many credentials that if I tried to read them all, I'd probably like, I don't know, take 10 minutes. It looks like you're one of those people, so... It's a shortcut. Um, would you tell me about your research? What are you working on right now? We'll discuss that. Yeah, so my lab is really focused quite broadly on on many dis different aspects of the human microbiome. Um, really focused on a, a couple of areas in, in, with regards to health and, and really looking at early life and uh, what constitutes uh, health in early life and how the microbiome contributes to that. And a big area of research is, is starting to look at the other end of life, and that is aging and how the microbiome changes with age, and perhaps how we can affect how the microbiome changes with age and how immune senescence occurs. This, these two go hand in hand, and the idea is, 
is uh, can we sustain a, a healthier uh, microbiome immune uh, homostasis longer in life and improve healthy aging. Uh, and then we also focus on quite a bit of disease, mainly chronic disease. So we look at chronic airway disease and the role of the microbiome, particularly in cystic fibrosis and asthma. Uh, and then in the gut, we look um, primarily at ulcerative colitis and uh, Crohn's disease, and to a certain extent, irritable bowel syndrome, and trying to understand uh, the role of the microbiome. Um, and in at least in the case of uh, ulcerative colitis, we're interested in uh, whether the microbiome can be a therapy. And of course, we work on fecal transplants and, and uh, ulcerative colitis. Do you think there's uh, any part of the body that doesn't have a constituent microbiome associated with it? Um, that, that's an excellent question. <laughs> Complicated one. Um, I think there's no such thing as a, there's probably no such thing as a sterile site that um, any part of the body will at least have low abundant or at least transient microbes. Um, having an established stable microbiome that uh, contributes to local homeostasis and interactions the way we think of it in the gut, for example, I think is is a little bit more complicated. And there's probably uh, there are probably sites that really don't have a resident microbial community um, that really plays this 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 dynamic role in, in um, modulating and maintaining the immune system the way it does at mucosal surfaces. So not just the gut, but certainly the upper airways and to some extent the lower airways. Uh, but there's probably no true sterile sites. Yeah, I know I've got, I've probably got some different, difficult questions, but what do you think defines the, the end of a niche or the interface between one microbial colony and another? Is there any study in looking at that? You know, what, I know there's plenty of others to study, but has anyone looked at that? What happens at the interface of two colonies? Um, so, so just sort of in the bigger question of, of how do all these microbes interact? And, uh, I think uh, I think one, like most ecological systems, many of the interactions are neutral. So many of the microbes in the same environment have very little direct interaction, even if they're close and um, physically close. Uh, they require different nutrients. They exploit different parts of the host. But as organisms get closer together, functionally and taxonomically, then you start to see lots of interactions. And the dominant interaction is always competitive. And so, for example, the, the number of, of sort of bacteriosins, which are, are small peptide antibiotics that many bacteria make, the diversity of that in the human microbiome is, is, is really impressive. Um, and that's because things don't get along. So that's a, that's a mechanism for, for microbes to, to uh, compete with one another. There are oh, certainly... Yeah. Good question here. You're saying that microbes make peptide-length antibiotics that target other microbes, or they're oh, absolutely. Broad spectrum, a they kill Abs uh, so, so um, absolutely. So, bacteriosins and and sort of that group of of antimicrobial compounds, we've historically thought of being very specific, and so E. coli makes them that kill other E. coli's. Now, as we as, as this field is really starting to expand rapidly, you know, we are starting to find bacteriosins that kill more distantly related organisms. But in general, they usually kill things um, 
closely related strains or species. And if you think about it, that's who you really compete with. In in a university setting, I use the analogy with my students. You know, when you're out competing for a job, you're not competing with the English majors. You don't have to worry about what they're doing. You have to worry about the people that are most like you. And it's the same in any ecosystem. So, so often you see uh, strain level competition um, that happens. So, you know, one strain will outcompete another strain by having a set of bacteriosins or other or other antimicrobial mechanisms. Bacteria are really good at not getting along. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, there are also lots of mechanisms which bacteria do interact and cooperate. Um, and the simplest of that, and probably the most common in terms of the gut, is where one bacteria um, will utilize a resource and its waste product becomes uh, food for something else in, in, the, in the community. Um, these products tend to accumulate and in a pure culture of that one organism, those products tend to slow growth and metabolism. Um, so having something else siphon those off actually facilitates that organism's growth and, and feeds another organism. So those kinds of metabolic interactions are, are probably quite common as well. Um, Do you think that the, um, the, the metabolic interactions are like jobs that need to be done in the host? Like let's say the, you know, I don't know, the, the proximal colon, you know, the end of the colon. It just seems like, I guess I'm getting the feeling that there's jobs to be done that the host needs done. And so bacteria are there to fill it. And there's redundancy and, you know, multiple bacteria seem to be able to fill, fill the same job. But it just seems that's what governs the whole uh, need for the commensal bacteria and the whole, I guess, the set of interactions that they uh, they undergo. And then the immune systems there is maybe the, the enforcer to make sure that they're uh, they're doing what needs to be done. So I think that's that's pretty close. And a really good example of that is fiber. You know, so we're supposed to eat fiber and it's good for us. Well, when we when the fiber makes its way to the to the colon, um, there are the organisms that really break down the bulk fiber. Um, and those are the primary fermenters. Um, the byproducts of that are picked up by other bacteria. And, and usually used to generate these short-chain fatty acids we hear so much about, and things like butyrate. And butyrate is, is a primary fuel source for the enterocytes that line the colon. That's what they prefer. If they get that as a fuel source, um, uh, they're the healthiest barrier functions intact. And so there you have uh, really distinct roles, the organisms that are really good at breaking down the bulk fiber, um, and there's maybe multiple layers of that as well, breaking down um, not just the complex polycarbohydrates in the in the fiber, but you know the 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 entire fiber, you know the the rice, the the grains, or so on. There's a lot more to breaking that down than just the carbohydrates. So those those all play different roles and and sort of uh, feed the next layer of organisms. And that sort of hierarchy will 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 occur naturally with the organisms present. Um, but superimposed on that is a whole bunch of organisms fighting for that fiber, fighting for those secondary metabolites. And um, uh, somehow you come to some sort of uh, balance and that and that um, that's part of the, the dynamic that is the, the microbiome. So how do you think dysbiosis happens? Like, you know, how do you think, for instance, C. difficile rises to power? I guess it's, you know, after an end, so, so, antibiotics, 
the yeah. pathway for it to proliferate. So, so basically, it comes back to this. Uh, this is a really competitive environment. Um, you know, we talk about you know this commensal relationship, and and we kind of you know sometimes get the idea that this is just a great place to be a micro, but it's incredibly c- competitive. There's a high density of organisms, um, each producing things that can kill each other, um, all struggling for the same resources. Um, but the, all of those dynamic interactions sort of keep everybody in check. Um, but when you start to remove that, um, an opportunistic organism can take over. And and uh, what you see in something like C. difficile is if you start to knock down those organisms, you just create an environment um, for other organisms to take over. And C. diff is a really good example of that. Um, many people carry around C. diff and are quite healthy. It's not uncommon at all in young children to have C. diff um, uh, as long as you're healthy. But as soon as you become, that microbiome gets suppressed and there's a niche where it can take over, uh, it will take over. Um, dysbiosis in the, in the bigger picture, you know, we use dysbiosis pretty liberally in this field. Uh, and it's really quite difficult to define. Um, for starters, we don't know what, what a healthy microbiome is. And uh, my healthy microbiome may not be your healthy microbiome. And if you had my microbiome, uh, it, it may not work so well. It may be dysbiotic for you. And so because we can't really define what a healthy microbiome, it's actually relatively hard to define what an unhealthy microbiome or dysbiotic microbiome is. And and I really think of it, that I, I really think you can't think of the microbiome and dysbiosis um, without the context of the host. And, and a dysbiotic microbiome is really one that, that's out of sync with the host and driving uh, some disease state. So it's a bit of a circular argument, but I think it, you know, we can't just look at a microbiome profile and go, that's not good, um, uh, unless it's all C. diff. Uh, but many times we will see a microbiome profile for someone who's very healthy um, that has a, a proportion of microbes that just doesn't look right. Uh, yet they're very healthy, and and we've had, for example, in uh, fecal uh, fecal transplant donor donors um, that have cured uh, probably dozens or more uh, C. diff patients. Um, if we'd looked at the microbiome profile, we would say let's not use those as a donor, but they're healthy for them. And uh, um, so this this creates this difficulty in trying to define dysbiosis um, as a microbiome property. It's really a microbiome host. Problem. Well, maybe, so it, yeah, it seems like there's many different mixes of bacteria that would create a healthy environment, and it seems very dependent upon the host cells and their epigenetics, et cetera. You know, like I've, I've spoken to, like, I believe her name is Florence McAllister, and she looks at uh, pancreatic tumors, and the tumors themselves have different microbiomes than yeah. the, the other pancreatic cells. So it seems like, you know, uh, for all cells in the body, or all organs at least, or tissues that the microbial constituent that attaches to it or, you know, hangs out in the niche it's created, they shape each other, you know, the needs of those cells and their action and everything. So, So, yeah. So if you think about what happens in early life, uh, uh, you know, the gut goes from zero to a full um, complement of microbes, not a full complement, but a full load of microbes really in, in a couple of days. It's a, it's an incredible growth. Um, and that, that growth, that community is really unstable and changes a lot during that 
you know, really during the first year of life. But what's happening is that that community is evolving um, the same time as your immune system is evolving and your, and your, and your organs and your, you know, your gut is really maturing. And, and it's really that these two things are entangled and co-evolved together. And that's, that's part of what makes a microbiome stable. It's not just the community of microbes. If you take those community of microbes out and stick them in a fermenter all on their own, they'll eventually reach, reach some stable community, but you'll lose a bunch of organisms and some other things will grow. It won't be identical. Um, what really, it's, it's the, the host plays a big role in, in helping and shape and maintain that. And like you say, that all, these all sort of evolve together. Um, in in that first year of life and there's there's randomness in there um and then there's all sorts of other influences through diet and and host genetics um but it's what makes us all unique is that initial evolution of co-evolution of those two uh systems the the immune system and the microbiome yeah it makes sense so what do you think is happening when someone gets Crohn's disease or when someone gets irritable bowel syndrome what do you think are the possible causes of it and what's happening is the microbiome being shifted into this state continuously that that causes a you know a misalignment of the host needs versus the microbe needs yeah so so the challenge here is always what initiates disease so we know the microbiomes are quite different in disease um, but we also know that inflammation will select for microbes, um, changes in, in gut function, which happen with these, with these chronic diseases, um, will also change the environment, so microbes are going to change. So we see big changes on disease. But, you know, what are the key factors that really drive that early on? And I think um, that's been a really hard thing to get at. I, it, it's pretty clear that there are environmental factors. Um, there, there's, um, exposures that we have either through diet or just through the environment that are driving, helping to contribute to these. Um, there's a genetic risk, of course, but the genetic risk has always been there. What's changed is certainly the environmental factors. Uh, one contributor may be, um, that in that very early stage of life, we're, we're establishing microbiomes that are less robust to environmental perturbance, uh, and that can be contributing. Um, but a lot has changed in the last 30 or 40 years with the nature of our food, um, food additives, uh, the quality of our diets. Uh, although, um, you know, you can, people who really try and eat healthy can still get Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So it's more complicated than that. But um, it, it really is a, an impact of the environment on us on a vulnerable host and maybe to some extent on a, on a vulnerable microbiome. Uh, but maybe it's, it's mostly driven by these environmental factors that push, uh, push the, the microbiome into imbalance. And when it's imbalanced, it also, you know, the immune system is now out of balance in these chronic diseases. So it's not behaving like it normally does. And that's why it's so hard to correct. C. difficile infections, uh, the microbiome is completely out of whack, but the immune system is more or less intact, and fecal transplants work wonderful. The microbiome goes back to normal by whatever mechanism, and everything's fine. In these other diseases like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, although we, we see some success with fecal transplants, it's not nearly the same. And I think part of that is that we the immune system has to reset at the same time, 
which is why it's a harder problem than something like treating C. diff. Yeah, I guess you could break it down into post-mediated, microbe-mediated, or microbiome-mediated, or you know, dual. Both are needed to treat right. a certain condition. Yeah, yeah. And I think again, if you think of a healthy state as this nice balance, um, the d- disease state isn't so much about being imbalanced. It's just being balanced in a disease state. And so it's also hard. You know, we talked a lot about the resilience and the stability of the microbiome. And so when it's in a healthy state, you can often perturb it and it bounce back. Um, if it if it's in a, a balanced but disease state and you perturb it, it's it's gonna go back to the disease state quite quickly. And so that's that's why it's a little harder to to treat these diseases, because it's really this uh, uh, you, you really have a new a stable homeostasis between the immune system and the gut. It's just the wrong one. What do you think happens when someone gets a, a fecal transplant? Like, yeah, you know, if you were, if you could have eyes on it, literally, what do you think is happening? Um, I think we're, I, I think that there, um, we, we don't have data for this, but this is something we'd really like to start to look at is that we do see uh, a bit of a shock to the immune system. Nothing really drastic, but again, something that might perturb the immune system. Um, we do certainly introduce a lot of microbes, um, but how many microbes actually engraft in our stable, I think is, is still really up for debate. Um, it's something that we've had to look really hard for to demonstrate in ulcerative colitis. It's not obvious in these fecal transplants. There's, there are some things that happen. Um, one of the challenges is that even in, in someone with um, severe GI disease, um, they still have many of their, what we would consider the really beneficial microbes. They're just at really low levels. And sometimes you have to look very hard to find them, but they're there. And so part of the recovery might not be getting those from the donor, but just creating the environment where their own microbes can can thrive again. And part of that gets back to, you know, the that coevolution of the immune system and your bugs. So you're going to want to select for your bugs. And we tend to see when we do see transfer, it tends to be close related strains to strains that are already there. I wish we knew how fecal transplants worked because if we knew how they worked, we would know how to make them better. Um, and um, but I still think it's an open question. I still think there's a lot to learn about actually how these things work. It, it's really not the sort of wholesale transfer from a donor to a patient. No, I'm sure there is. <clears throat> Have you um, looked at how bacteria behave when they're in the milieu of many other bacteria? Like, and here's an example. So you said that bacteria will make antimicrobial bacteriocins, I believe you call them. Yeah. Do they tend to make them all of a sudden when there's quote-unquote enough of them, when they sense that they've got the initiative and they can predominate? Or do they always make it? Do they make it uh, a lot more when there's a lot more of them? Is there like a, a quorum sensing that modulates... You know, behavior ongoing when they're in this mix. Uh, there's, there's probably some, but if you think of the gut as a, as a, an, an ecosystem, it's a place where uh, sort of cell cell specific communication is going to be messy. Um, and uh, there's, there's certainly some of that that goes on. I think it's a lot driven by just the local environment. Um, where, where these bacteriocins probably play a really big role is on mucosal surfaces. So, you know, in, in the gut, you can think of the lumen and then the mucosal surfaces. 
but the microbiomes in the airways and the oral cavity, nasal cavity, on the skin, um, these aren't high density communities the way we think about the, you know, the, the sheer mass of bacteria in the gut. But those uh, micro microbe interactions and, and particularly the, the uh, negative interactions, the inhibitions, are really important for this process of colonization resistance. So, you know, our commensal bacteria. Uh, do many things for us, but one of the big roles is they really play an important role in colonization resistance. And that, and you know, you think of a pathogen coming in, um, the first thing it has to do is overcome the local microbes. They sit in all the prime real estate, they do make lots of antimicrobials, um, and they keep the immune system primed. And so, so this happens, you know, on all surfaces. You don't need really dense communities. Um, to, to have these processes occur. So it's probably a lot driven by the local environment. Um, although there'll, there'll be some signaling and interaction for sure. Well, what if you looked at C. difficile in a healthy person and then C. difficile when it predominates and versus unhealthy? Does C. difficile, for instance, produce different metabolites? Does it act very differently when it's in a dominant state versus a, you know, a, a background player state? Does it produce substances to crowd out other microbes when it's in the dominant state? Um, uh, really, once it dominates and starts producing toxins, and it may produce toxins at low levels in a healthy state, but um, probably not. Uh, but once it starts producing toxins um, and the host response, which is diarrhea to those toxins, uh, uh, does the job for it. So it really clears out the, the competition. Um, that's part of what the toxins do. So once once it, it takes hold, uh, you know, it exploits the host essentially to keep the gut, uh, the, the competition low. All sort of enteric pathogens that cause diarrhea sort of do this. Um, diarrhea is a great way to keep the bacterial content of the gut low. But I mean, I guess the distinction here we probably don't know is that, so let's say it's C. difficile again. Um, is it producing the toxins? There's just not a lot of them, so there's not a lot of toxin. And when there's more of them, they produce more toxin, which overwhelms the system, or maybe they don't produce it at all. And then when they predominate, then they start producing it. There's two yeah, different and, behaviors, and that yeah. may tell you something. Yeah, and certainly in a, in a much more competitive environment where it, it really doesn't have an advantage and can't outcompete, it's, it's certainly growing in a different way uh, than when it's flourishing and, and, and doesn't have that competition and it's really growing at a very different rate. And so the toxin genes, or you could think of this as anything could be under, uh, under the control. So we'd only start making them uh, under those sorts of conditions. Now that, that could be controlled by something like quorum sensing, probably not. I mean, it's not necessary to have quorum sensing to coordinate those kinds of, um, that kind of regulation. So I've been speculating a lot, but what, what kind of specific experiments are you running for studies or trials, and what are you trying to figure out specifically? So um, in, in a couple of different areas, one is, again, we're very interested in this notion of colonization resistance, particularly in the airways and as we age. Respiratory infections are, are still a really significant causes of mortality and, and morbidity, even in the Western world, in the very young and the very old. And those are the the two groups where the respiratory tract microbiome and the immune system are, are not mature. And so as I, as I sort of talked about the, 
in early life, the microbiome and the immune system sort of co-evolve, um, they sort of start to disentangle as we age. And trying to understand uh, the role of the microbes in the airways in, in reducing our susceptibility to infection, I, I think is really interesting. And we're starting to find um, both the way the microbes interact with the immune system and sort of keep it primed, um, but also this wealth of, of bacteriosins and antimicrobial activities um, that the microbiome has, uh, which we start to lose um, in, uh, as we age. And that, that's an interesting role in, in trying to understand that. Um, in, in ulcerative colitis, where we've been doing the fecal transplants and, and with, and with Paul Moyetti, we had done, we had looked at, um, the microbiomes of the donors and the patients, look at the responders and the non-responders and using sort of the simple 16S profiling to look at the communities, you really can't see a signature of engraftment that, that gives you an indication how it's going. Um, we've been, we've been digging much deeper in that and we use, um, both metagenomics, where we sequence all the DNA, uh, but a strategy that uh, involves a lot of culture. So we've cultured the donors extensively and combined that with metagenomics to really get a much deeper picture of what the donor microbiome looks like. And now we can, we can query the patient microbiome with that and ask um, what strains or functions are really being transferred. And um, the metagenomics alone really didn't get us very far, but this strategy is now starting to tell us what kinds of functions are really being increased in the, in the patients that respond, um, that don't increase in the patients that don't respond. And so we're really starting to get a handle on, on the functionality in, in uh, uh, ways we couldn't before. And I think this is, you know, there's, there's a big push, of course, to, to really start to understand what's going on and not just describe it and that and, and functionality is part of that um, and, I, and um, that that I think is is where we're and most labs are moving in the future really trying to understand one of, one of the big challenges though is you know with the sequence data um, we do have a problem that often we can't assign a sequence to any function um, Sometimes we can assign it to hypothetical functions. So there's, you know, there's, there's clearly a lot more biology that needs to be sorted out. But often when we assign something and we assign some sort of high level function to it, um, and that, that's, that's really not understanding it in the kind of depth that we need to understand. And so I think. So, yeah, so you're ahead. saying even if you look at the genes and you estimate what their gene expression would be, it still doesn't necessarily correlate with what could be going on. Just the potential is not enough. Well, and and sometimes we'll, you know, sometimes we can say, you know, we have a, a, an enzyme that is involved in in cleaving sugars, um, but we might not know which ones, and we might not know where it is, and we might not know, you know, if it's really targeting something very specific, and and how that really might affect the way it interacts with the host or with other microbes. And so, you know, really what we're, we're, we're still a long ways from being able to assign really good functionality to an awful lot of the data that we generate. Um, and I think that's one of the big challenges. And as we, you know, um, there was a long time where it was, you know, people would say, well, you can't study the microbiome by culture because you can't culture it. So we have to do sequencing. 
And it's pretty clear now, and we and others certainly have shown that when you do culture, you culture more diversity than you see by even deep sequencing. And uh, it, it gives you, um, you know, it gives you much better genetic data because you're not, you know, you're able to assemble whole genomes um, and you're able to do functionality. And I think that's one of the challenges and the exciting thing that's going to happen in the next next few years is we're really going to start to understand this these organisms in a lot more detail. Um, so I think one of the limitations now is is we can say you know we have a collection of genes that go up or down in disease, and we sort of have a high level um, idea of what they might be doing, um, or the genes that we really do understand. Um, you know, we spend all our efforts trying to build a story around those when the really important things may be the ones we don't understand them. So we, you know, we just ignore them. So I, I think the challenge and the excitement now is really to start to, to really get a better handle on, on uh, the genetics and functionality of this amazing menagerie of microbes we have, uh, which we really just don't understand. Yeah. It's very, uh, very complicated. What, what would you do if you could throw everything you had, every diagnostic you had, of, you know, at samples, what would you want to look at to get a complete picture? Um, well, I, I mean, we would certainly like, we, we would culture because we we like to culture everything that we can. Um, and that gives us a depth of, of sequence data that is valuable. Um, if you could do metatranscriptomics and look at what's going on in terms of gene expression, I think that's a challenging project to do properly. But when you could do that, um, one thing is just to do metatranscriptomics and then try and figure out what those functions are. But if you actually have the organisms and their genomes, you can match transcripts back to specific bugs and specific genes in a way that you can't do if you're just doing shotgun metagenomics without a good reference. Um, and then, of course, metabolomics. Um, and then you always want to know what the host is doing. So in a in a world unrestricted by funds and expertise and time, um, I think really you 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 want to you want to study the microbes, uh, uh, you know, a great genetic picture and uh, sequence data built from culturing, having the organisms you can test hypotheses on afterwards, able to map transcripts back to specific organisms, maybe you know turning on gene X in organism A versus gene B has really different consequences. And the difference between disease states may be who's expressing this gene. Um, when we don't map back to the organisms, you can't see it with that kind of resolution. Um, and so, uh, and then of course, metabolomics, when you can get uh, information about uh, at least key metabolites, I think uh, that's important. And and how the host is seeing this whole thing going on. So, um but that's a work for an institute or more, <laughs> almost on every sample. Yeah, but the methods are getting there, right? So, so what, what do you think in the next few years? You know, because of your research, or in general, well, more specifically, because of your research, what what effects on people's health do you want to have in the near term? Our work in chronic airway disease is an area which I think um, so. How we got into the microbiome in a very indirect way. And, and we set out a number of years ago at the encouragement of a very um, brilliant physician to sort of revisit the microbiology of cystic fibrosis airway infections. And um, we did that by culture, and we showed the airways were much more complicated 
than the sort of the clinical microbiology picture. This is standard today, but at the time, um, it was not uh, well accepted. And the surprising thing for us is we found pathogens that were missed by clinical microbiology right away. And a lot of chronic airway disease, um, although it has many underlying drivers, uh, often the drivers of acute events are infections. And um, what causes an infection in a lung doesn't have to be what we would consider you know, a bona fide pathogen. But many commensal organisms in the wrong place um, have the potential. And many upper airway microorganisms have many virulent properties given the right opportunity. And so I think understanding airway infections uh, in, in these chronic diseases will open up uh, really new um, avenues for treatment, which will be quite directed and personalized, um, really based on just good microbiology. And I think that's, that's a that's sort of a low-hanging fruit in, in terms of the microbiome, but I think important. Um, I, I'm also quite optimistic about um, getting a better handle on aging and how we can help promote healthy aging um, from a microbiome perspective um, to sort of reduce susceptibility. We'd all like to live long, but we'd also like to live long healthy. And I think um, one of the things that, that certainly work for many other groups have shown is that the gut microbiome as we age seems to be more malleable. Uh, you know, we, we can't shift the microbiome the way we'd like to with diet or, or way we think we could with diet uh, earlier in life, but it seems to be quite sensitive as, as, the, as we age uh, and potentially we can manipulate the, the gut better through better diets and, and potentially increase or improve aging in context of the gut, we like to do the same thing in the airway and, and reduce infections. Um, and then uh, again, I think in the in the area of fecal transplants, I think as we understand more of this, um, you know, when it works in ulcerative colitis, it works and it works as well as the most expensive therapies we have. Um, and uh, I think if we can learn to do this better, um, it is a it is a viable therapy. Uh, for many diseases, it's not a cure-all for everything. Our world problems aren't going to be solved by fecal transplants, but there's going to be cases certainly when, where this will be a very efficacious therapy. And, and if we can understand that, um, I think that's going to be a really valuable approach. Uh, and the last area that I think everyone's looking at is, is what therapeutic potential is buried in, in the microbiome in the context of small molecules. Um, I, I mentioned bacteriosins. Uh, historically, we haven't really used bacteriosins as antimicrobials, but there's a wealth of really highly specific antimicrobial uh, um, compounds produced by the microbiome. Uh, uh, more yeah, and more. They're the masters of it. They, they have yeah. to deal with their neighbors all the time. So. Yeah. And there's lots of immunomodulatory compounds, and we don't know enough about those. And, and so I think in the, in the, in the near future, we're going uh, to turn you know, commensal organisms and into uh, maybe not necessarily in drugs in the context of like a probiotic, but uh, by exploiting their, their, the remarkable chemistry that they do and the small molecules they produce. I think that's another avenue that that's going to be really exciting in the microbiome in the next few years, and an area we're, we're quite interested in. Well, very good. Well, Mike, it's been a really good call. It's, uh, I'm glad to talk to you about these things. And <clears throat> what's the best way for 
people to find out more about what you're doing, you know, and maybe interact somehow? So we do have a web page, which is not always up to, up to date. We, we try. Um, uh, I do have a Twitter account. Uh, I'm not a, an active Twitter. I'm, I'm a little bit too old for that, but I, I try and keep up. The lab certainly is active. I, I will say that in, in the context of GI disease, we are part of this Spore Imagine network. I, I believe you talked to Paul Moyetti about this. The, the Spore Imagine network is a cross-Canada network looking at GI disease, uh, chronic GI diseases, and um, psychiatric comorbidities, and, and um, a very exciting cross, cross-country project, um, which has a very active website and, and social media that sort of keep you up to date on, on the GI side of things, and particularly the fecal transplant side. Well, very good. Mike, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.